these are precious days for our sangha, and, uh, our, our community of practitioners. And I want to say that a couple of our members are um, really ill right now. So this morning is dedicated to them. Will you join me in that? And we will take care of them. So this morning also, a few minutes ago, um, we did a full moon ceremony. And that's a monthly or it could even be twice a month ceremony of reaffirming our um, commitment to the precepts, taking refuge and repenting and acknowledging all the great practitioners upon whose coattails we ride or robes, I guess. Um, and he said, the seven Buddhas before Buddhas. So a bunch of you were here. Did that phrase just kind of slide by, the seven Buddhas before Buddhas? Did it catch your attention? <laughs> I actually, I remember the first time I learned that there were more than one Buddha. There was more than one Buddha. There were, more than, there were many Buddhas. I remember that, and I was shocked because I had the kind of preconception that uh, there was only one. There had only been one. There was ever going to be one, and his name was Shakyamuni, maybe, but there was only one. And in a way, that's Buddhism's. That was Buddhism's um, fault. That was a that was an intentional <laughs> presentation in uh, when was it? 1895. There was a conference of of religions in Chicago, and they sent over a really great Renzai teacher. And that Renzai teacher, they had a conference of, of Buddhists in Japan, and they said, I think it'll be easier for the Americans if we just say there's one Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> so they just talked about Shakyamuni Buddha. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> And then the kind of curtain is open and it's like, oh, there are a whole bunch of them. <laughs> they have different costumes, they have different names. And actually there were many more than seven before Shakyamuni Buddha, the Buddha of our age. But um, they just to, I suppose, to make it a more manageable chant, they say seven Buddhas before Buddha. <laughs> and then we also bowed to Maitreya Buddha, the Buddha of the coming age. Did you notice that? Okay. Maitreya is a wonderful being. We have actually a small statue outside in the little planted area outside the back door. So you, when you're coming out of the Western Zendo, you walk straight into the gaze of Maitreya Buddha. And he's the coming Buddha. And he's usually in that pose. So that's a carved stone representation of Maitreya Buddha. And he's usually sitting very casually. Um, nobody's sitting quite as casually as he is. Oh, Boston is sitting like Maitreya Buddha. <laughs> Often like this, or even like this, gazing, and he's waiting for the right time to come down. Like, come on. <laughs> and his name has the same root as metta practice, which means love or loving kindness. So Maitreya, Maitri, Metta, so it means love. So the coming Buddha is love, Maitreya. So I just wanted to let you know that. 
And um, now I want to go on to something else, which is the um, this world uh, where Maitreya hasn't yet quite arrived. He's he's thinking about it, but. Um, Dogen Zenji, the founder of Zen in Japan, liked to jot down little conversations. So if any of us were having like a conversation and Dogen Zenji, or he'd read about it in the text, he would write it down and then maybe use it in one of his writings or just contemplate it. It just caught his attention. And one of the interchanges that caught his attention was between a Zen Chinese Zen master and a Zen student. And the student asked the master, what do you do when the 10,000 things are coming at you all at once? And the Zen master said, don't try to control them. So Dogen Zenji just captured that. He had a list of 300 um, of those things, those little koans, cases that he kept and turned and sometimes wrote about, but it's like any of us keeping notes of things that we like to think about. So how is it when the 10,000 things are coming at you all at once? Don't try to control them. And I, when I'm pondering that, I think, did he laugh when he saw that? Did he, was, he, was Dogen Zenji amused when he saw that? What did he think about that? Like if you were to sincerely ask, a wise mentor, somebody you hoped was wise. <laughs> How is it when the 10,000 things are coming at me all at once and your mentor says, don't try to control them? I realized when I was um, thinking about that, that I've often thought, I've often visualized the 10,000 things as coming from one direction. I just realized I had visualized it as kind of basically coming from this frontal direction, and then I'm sort of like, I have a paddle, <laughs> sword. <laughs> and then I realized that's, that's just my kind of frontal-oriented view. They're coming at us from all directions, all the time. Sensory, mental, internal, outside, they're coming at us all the time. And of course, the our Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, understood this, understood that sensation, understood what we're facing, and wrote about it all the time, gave teachings about this all the time. Not about that phrase, but about how is this human experience of so many things coming at us all at once to be described, and how is it to be met? And one of his ways of dealing with it, I like, it's called the, the eight winds. So this is in a very short sutra, um, Loka Vipati Sutta, very short sutra. And he just addresses this human condition, our human experience of being in a world where the winds are blowing at us all the time. And these eight winds that he lists then become quite popular. People write about them down the, down the centuries, but they wins are gain and loss, pleasure and pain, status and disgrace, and uh, what's the other one? Pleasure, pain, 
Did I say that one? Gain and loss, status loss, status of disgrace, and I have to look. <laughs> In lists of four, I always remember three. <laughs> Probably one I'm completely unconcerned with. <laughs> Praise and blame. <laughs> so the Buddha in this little sutra writes that um, everyone, you know, he calls in the translation of Tanisaro Bhikkhu, he said he calls it run of the mill people. So us, run of the mill people, and highly accomplished practitioners <laughs> are in the midst of the same winds all the time. Gain and loss, okay, praise and blame, <laughs> uh, pleasure and pain, and status and disgrace, or good reputation and bad reputation. These winds are blowing. And the monk in the sutra says, well, if we're all facing the same thing, what's the difference between what an ordinary person does, run-of-the-mill person, and a high practitioner? What's the difference? And the Buddha says that run-of-the-mill mind states um, tends to welcome or rebel these things so when praise comes our way welcome mm -hmm. praise oh thank you for noticing um and gain oh i this thing was given to me oh welcome and high status or good reputation welcome this is well earned don't think and um what's the other one pleasure uh, good feeling. I welcome this good feeling. My body's feeling good. I welcome. And then to rebel against the other side. So they're blaming me. I'm going to fight back against that. Um, attacking my reputation, rebel, pain, rebel, blame, rebel. Did I get all four? Loss, rebel. That's the um, so-called run-of-the-mill person's response Two responses, welcoming and rebelling. On the other hand, the Buddha says that our Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, says that a practitioner, oh, he said that um, the run-of-the-mill person does not reflect gain has arisen for me it is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. She does not discern it as it actually is. So, pain has arisen for me. This is how a run-of-the-mill person does not reflect. He always starts off with that. Um, it is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. She does not discern it as it actually is. Okay? And we kind of observe over time that we, it's easier to practice with the things we don't like because we're highly motivated to cut through that. Um, pain has arisen. Loss is arising. Um, attacks on our reputation and blame. These are arising. So that's easier to say, well, that's inconstant. Don't, it's inconstant. It's going to change. It's impermanent. Relieved. But the, the Buddha observed that for us run-of-the-mill run people. What does run-of-the-mill mean? 
Hmm? Where does it come from? Um, we, uh, it's harder to say, well, this feels really good. My reputation is really sound. It's inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. That's a harder one to practice with. Or this is incredibly pleasurable, this interaction or this sensation. It's inconstant, subject to change, and stressful. So, in con- excuse me, run-of-the-mill people, Buddha says, aren't inclined to reflect on that. So the only difference between run-of-the-mill people and high practitioners is the ability to feel the wind coming and recognize it for how it really is, inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. Pleasure, pain, uh, status, disgrace, praise, blame, gain, loss. Those are the winds, and they're always blowing all the time. Uh, I have kind of a good story. I want to tell the story now. First, this little um, poem, not really a poem, but uh, some verses. They lost. (laughs) (laughs) Or disgrace. There's a verse at the end of the sutra. And of course, or you may not, well, all these sutras were remembered orally. All of these were memorized by people. They weren't written down at the time of the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha. They were memorized and then recited. And then finally, maybe a hundred years after the Buddha's death, they were written down. Yeah, people gathered together and committed them to writing. So the verses were often easier to memorize. This is the verse at the end. Gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, pain. These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person, mindful, ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable undesirable ones bring no resistance. His welcoming and rebelling are scattered, gone to their end, do not exist. Knowing the dustless, sorrowless state, he discerns rightly. He discerns rightly has gone beyond becoming to the further shore. So that's a beautiful and gentle and kind of tempting, I think, verse about how to handle the winds. You go beyond them. You're not tempted by them. You're not bothered by them. You just see how empty they are and how um, uh, stressful they are and subject to change. Okay, That's the goal at that time. But Buddhism and Zen are changing all the time. So I was kind of wondering, like, what the difference would be between Shakyamuni Buddha's teachings and the the teachings of the Buddha immediately before him, Dipankara Buddha. What would he teach? He might have taught something rather different. So the teaching of our Buddha to that group of people a couple thousand, two and a half thousand years ago was that. Go beyond cut through. 
And then a couple of um, centuries later, uh, Nagarjuna, some, you're studying Nagarjuna, correct? Nagarjuna, great Indian commentator on these, had a different take. And we can watch this way of handling the winds start to evolve. So Nagarjuna wrote, the world knower, another one of the epithets of the Buddha, the world knower, knower has said, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, pleasant words and unpleasant words, praise and blame, these are the eight winds. <laughs> Do not allow these concerns to occupy your mind. Regard them with equanimity. It's really different. These winds are blowing from all directions. And maybe notice which ones we allow to occupy the mind and regard them with equanimity. So equanimity is a really high value in, in, in Buddhist practice, but it doesn't mean indifference. It means surfing. It means equanimity. It means seeing things as they really are and regarding them that way. You could also, one could also regard these uh, winds that want to occupy our mind with loving kindness. Here it is. Or we could regard it with sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy is a very powerful practice which um, names the mental state of feeling glad for somebody else getting something that you want. Sympathetic joy, powerful practice. And then compassion, compassion for one's own, the things that are occupying one's own mind, compassion for others, watching them deal with it. So mindfulness, it says mindful of these things. Mindfulness is a powerful practice too, but it isn't limited to being mindful of my own world whirling in the, in the uh, winds of the world. It's also mindful of others. And it's a very helpful, powerful practice to use your mindfulness practice on others. When we know one of our friends, Sangha members, loved ones is being whirled by certain winds, we're mindful of that. We're mindful, whirling in the feeling of loss or whirling in a feeling of, of uh, too much gain or whirling in a feeling of being stuck on certain attributes that they want to have attached to them and watching them sort of get challenged. So not just ourselves. It isn't just now centuries after Buddha. It's more clearly made apparent that this is letting go of um, the isolation, perfecting my own practice. Yeah, I'm really indifferent to praise and blame. Sorry for you. <laughs> no, it's like, okay, I, I see the inconstancy and subject to changing nature of praise and blame, and I see it. Sorry. <laughs> and so, oh, so then we can be more engaged with our friends with gain and loss, praise and blame, good reputation, bad reputation. So the story is um, about, this is modern. This is like two years ago. One of the founders of Austin Zen Center, 
founding member. Um, really, really nice person. I really like him. Very, very um, engaged in Zen practice person. Um, became the um, director of ERCOT. And so he was director of ERCOT and completely deserved. He's got that skill set so he could be in charge of our, what do they call it? It's our energy network in Houston, I mean, Texas. So he was in charge. So he wasn't practicing so much because he was so busy running our electric grid. So then when the ice storm happened and the whole grid shut down and it was the fault of somebody in government. <laughs> it was his fault. I remember opening the newspaper, because I do read paper newspapers, and there was his picture. This terrible person who has totally <laughs> destroyed the Texas grid <laughs> and is going to be fired. And I thought, you know, how terrible. <laughs> how terrible. Because I know this person. This person is a totally ethical person and is being watched. You can, he's reading his reputation demolished in the newspaper. So I thought about calling him and I thought, maybe I'll wait. <laughs> and so uh, I recently ran into him when I was in Austin. And um, it was a beautiful thing to see how strong this practice is for a practitioner. He said that uh, he knew exactly what was happening. He knew exactly why he had to take the fall. And of course, he knew it was not just, but he practiced with it. He, he knew the impermanent nature of these winds and that uh, rebelling against it would serve no purpose. And going on the attack would serve no purpose. Although he did have really mean things to say about Greg Abbott. <laughs> but there was no like ire in there and no fear. He knew what was going on. He knew he was a scapegoat. But he, he said he looked up what a scapegoat is. And then he told me. And it's a horrible thing. Oh, my goodness gracious. So he said, yeah, it's that bad. <laughs> What they do to a goat to make it take the blame for a whole community is not not nice. So um, isn't that a good story? Being able to practice with major status attacks. I was really impressed. And then this um, teaching of the eight winds has continued to develop. The uh, well, it began as a guide for, again, people who wanted to leave this world, essentially. The only way to really uh, copy our Shakyamuni Buddha is to um, cut through all these winds, have no experience of, have no uh, rebelling and no welcoming of any of these feelings. But they have changed. And the... Uh, one of the ones that I like is uh, Chatral Rinpoche. He says, no matter where you stay, be it a busy place or a solitary retreat, the only things that you need to conquer are the mind's five poisons and your own true enemies, the eight winds, nothing else. 
But then he says, okay, so he does say we have to conquer these eight winds, but here's how we do it. Whether it is by avoiding them, transforming them, taking them as the path, or looking into their very essence, whichever method is best suited to your own capacity. Isn't that nice? That's the Mahayana. It's that there are many ways to deal with these things, and there are many ways to learn. So Buddhism is sort of like science. And I was reading about, um, I was reading a good science writer called Siobhan Roberts, and she says science is all about uncertainty. She says scientists have learned how to work with uncertainty and to trust it. She quotes a statistician who says, update your priors. Update your, do you know this, right? Update your prior assumptions. Update them all the time. And meaning you update your prior views. And as you, as you, as we learn from standing in the wind, this is how we learn how to stand. We update our priors. We learn how to balance. We learn how to dance in the wind. Oh, that's a good way to end. We learn how to dance in the wind. <laughs> Thank you.